You are listening to the cycling podcast of the 2023 Tour de France. Today, we're in Morzine, les Portes du Soleil. No! Unbelievable! 500 meters to go to the top of the Jouplan. Pogacar and Vingegaard were riding so slowly, looking at each other. Pogacar took his moment, he went for the attack, and he had to stall because he got held up by a race motorbike. Now 400 meters to go, Pogacar's on the front, and he's completely stuck. There's nothing he can do, the crowd is closing in on him. The crowd here at the finish line was just about to erupt with roars of excitement, and now they're just looking at each other again. What a crazy finish at the top of this climb. That was Lizzie Banks at the finish line reacting to the moment of the stage, the big incident at the top of the Col de Duplan when Tadej Pogacar launched his sprint with about 500 metres to go to get those bonus seconds at the top of the climb and the two motorbikes were just far too close and forced him to stall his effort and really got in the way of the decisive moment of today's stage 14 of the Tour de France and that means Lizzie Banks EF Education Tipco SVB rider, fresh from the Giro Donna, is here on the Tour de France. Welcome, Lizzie. Thank you. Um, it's great to be here, Lionel, even if you can only just hear me over the sound of forklift trucks in the background, because I think we're parked next to where the start village is going to be set up tomorrow morning in Leger. Indeed we are, yeah. We're in our hotel on the balcony having a post-race drink and the Tour de France is literally setting up around us and we will do our best, hopefully. Um, well, hopefully they won't start the stage while we're sat here recording tonight's episode. But Ian Boswell also here. What a stage today. We're going to break down all of the drama and excitement, but welcome Ian. It's good to be here again, Lionel. Penultimate night on the Tour de France for this year. This is the Tour de France. We're in the thick of it today. We are in the thick of it. We better break down the details of what happened on today's stage. It's time for the tale of the attack. Well, we've moved inside here at our hotel because the beeping of all the forklift trucks reversing and the clanking of barriers would probably be an unpleasant listening experience, certainly very distracting out there. And it was a difficult enough stage to keep track of, wasn't it, stage 14? It went from Animas to Morzine. It was, again, only pretty short, 151.8 kilometres, five categorised climbs, including three first category climbs and then the all category climb of the Col de Jouplan and... All of you out there who rode the Etape du Tour, you'll be very familiar with the parkour from today. Off to a bit of a disrupted start because there was a very, very bad crash after no more than six kilometres. There was a little bit of rain at the start and Ian, we were we were hailing the skies, weren't we? Because it had been blisteringly hot the last few days and it was such a relief to have some cold moisture falling from the air, but not so great for the riders because it's been so dry for so long. And it wasn't a proper downpour, it was just a sprinkling. And so it meant that the descents, well, the roads in general were slippery and the crash on that little bit of downhill was severe. Lots of riders hit the deck and uh, the race doctors and the ambulance had to be called upon. And several withdrawals from that crash, not least Louis Menkes of Antomarche, who was lying 13th overall. I don't want to make the obvious unlucky for some there because uh, unfortunately Louis Menkes fractured his collarbone and is out of the race. Uh, there were lots of fallers and eventually after about a 20-25 minute delay the race did get going and 
before we knew it, there was another crash, wasn't there, on the descent of the Col de Feu. And Roman Bardet, 12th overall, is also out of the race, as is EF Education's James Shaw. Really disappointing for Shaw because he was talking up his hopes of getting in breaks today, tomorrow, and again in the final weeks, been riding really well in this Tour de France. A big shame for him. Uh, overall, we lost a few riders today. I'll run through them at the end. Um, the GC race really kicked off in the approach to uh, the Col de Juplan and Tom Pidcock was the first rider to be in any difficulty today. He got dropped and then we'll discuss Jumbo Visma's tactics, UAE Team Emirates response, but it was on the Juplan that the race really exploded into life and the group whittled down, uh, mainly under the pressure from Sepp Kuss. But there was that wonderful little moment where Tadej Pogacar gave Adam Yates, his teammate, a little nod to go to the front and just drive the pace and split the group down even further. And then Pogacar launched his attack 3.7 kilometers from the top of the Juplan, opened a gap, very similar to every other time we've seen Vingegaard get distanced. He kind of loses contact and then holds the gap and then the gap opens a little bit more and it took him a couple of kilometers to close back up and then we saw this incredible kind of track sprint tactics where the pace really dropped off and then there was the incident with the motorbike we'll talk about that in the next part and before we knew it Carlos Rodriguez of Ineos Grenadiers was in the front of the race and he descended down into Morzine to give Ineos their second stage win in a row and Finally, we had the sprint for the line where Pogacar pipped Jonas Vingegaard at the finish to make up for losing the sprint on the top of the Juplan. And what it means is that this morning, Vingegaard led by nine seconds and this evening he leads by ten seconds. Extraordinary stuff, really. The Tour de France is not being decided at the moment. It's going to go certainly into next week by the looks of it. On the GC then... Carlos Rodriguez, a stage winner, has moved up to third place. Jai Hindley has dropped down to fourth. He fell in that um, early crash. Sepp Kuss, as a result of all that teamwork, has moved up from tenth to sixth, bumping everybody else down a bit, little bit. And Felix Gall of AG2R is into the top ten as well, climbing five places. The king of the mountains competition, well... Jonas Vingegaard has taken the lead from Nielsen Paulus, but Paulus will, of course, still wear the jersey tomorrow. They're currently tied on points, but Pogacar is only six points behind, so Paulus's hopes of winning that jersey are receding. And I said I'd run through the riders who've pulled out. Menkes and Bardet, I mentioned already, and Shaw as well. But we also lost Movistar's Ruben Guerrero, EF Education's Esteban Chavez, Movistar's Antonio Pedrero, and Alpacin de Koenig's Ramon Sinkeldam quite a breathtaking stage today and we will discuss all of the big incidents next the cycling podcast at the 2023 tour de france is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science thank you very much to our long-term sponsors science in sport who are world leaders in endurance nutrition the SIS Beta Fuel, which was first developed for the Ineos Grenadiers, or Team Sky as they were then actually, it's now available to all, and each dual source energy gel contains 40 grams of carbohydrate from maltodextrin and fructose, scientifically proven to increase energy efficiency and deliver an enhanced power output during max efforts. And well, we saw this back in the 2018 Giro d'Italia when Chris Froome took off on the stage to Bardonecchia 
and put loads of time into Simon Yates, who was holding the pink jersey. He won the stage by three minutes, and a key part of that day was the fueling strategy. Team Sky put helpers all along the course to make sure that Froome would be able to take on board Beta Fuel at regular intervals and stay fueled and hydrated. So fuel, hydrate and recover like the Ineos Grenadiers riders at scienceinsport.com. This is Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, sitting at the back of the back. Stage 13 of the Tour de France, and I have to admit that today's was not an easy one. First of all, because of that massive crash at kilometre 6. I always admire the way the organisation of the Tour de France reacts in case of a big crash. Thierry Gouvenou immediately took the radio and asked... Uh, that the race was neutralised. He knows exactly, as a former rider, when it's very serious, and it was very serious. We had, a, I don't know, around 20, 25, 30 riders on the ground. And in those situations, the idea is, uh, well, to neutralise the race so that uh, the doctors can uh, attend to all the injured riders, and there were quite a few of them. So we stopped the race. We waited for uh, several riders to be evacuated in ambulances then we waited for new ambulances to come because you can't uh, continue the tour or the stage if you don't have the ambulances just in case and because it's the Tour de France because they have that uh, power it uh, always goes very quickly so that was a a first uh, part that was rather tricky to handle and then uh, was the crowds Um, in 19 years on the Tour de France I honestly think I've never seen so many people on the side of the roads. Um, I don't know if it's the Netflix effect, but uh, the climbs are absolutely crazy. And it is, to be honest, a bit worrying because you feel that sometimes the riders just can't attack. There's so many people in the middle of the road um, that, um, yeah, I hope, I I sincerely hope that it won't have an effect on the race in the days to come. That was Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour. I mean, he had his hands full today trying to keep track of everybody that had crashed and everything that was going on. And I think for listeners out there and also for ourselves, sometimes it's easy to forget just what a fantastic position Seb Piquet has in the race. I mean, he sees everything unfold. He's there in the car with Thierry Gouverneau, who's the man who effectively designs the route of the Tour de France. And... He's a real big deal in the Tour de France, uh, said Piquet, but he still couldn't get the number of the stage right. He said it was stage 13 there, but correction, corner said it was stage 14 today. And, uh, well, let's just quickly talk about that first crash because it did kind of shape the rest of the day, didn't it? There was the delay. We knew the stage would finish late. Lots of riders hit the deck. They would have been sort of nursing through with, um, you know, the the effects of that crash. You know, Jai Hindley lost time. He was somebody who went down. Um, But the correct decision was made, clearly, to pause the race, make sure everybody was okay, and then uh, resume when everyone was ready. Absolutely. I mean, crashes are never good. And, you know, to see riders come to the finish line already almost properly bandaged is kind of a nice thing to see in cycling. You know, the riders are actually able to fully be checked out before getting on their bike. And, And as we heard, you know, 
the, the main issue is the ambulances. And, you know, there's so many ambulances behind the race. If one or two riders go off to hospital, then there's no ambulances following the race. And, you know, hats off to ASO, to the UCI for making sure and kind of holding to that policy to make sure that if something does happen, that, you know, a medical medical team and medical staff are there ready to respond and the impressive thing today was they made that decision so quickly i mean and it's not just that they needed to make the decision you couldn't get any cars through there were riders all the way across the road no vehicles at all were able to pass so then it was only going to be a commissaire's car in the front of the race and in that in that situation the race has to be neutralized there was no race situation that had already happened the break hadn't formed but it definitely impacted the way the race was afterwards because some riders were shaken by it understandably not really wanting to go not really sure whether they should start racing yet and not um, trusting the road surface either exactly. you know the the roads didn't dry up for probably what another hour or so they still had to go up the climb and then down the descent so it shaped that early phase of the race for sure but what about the big incident of the day? Let's get right into it because the whole of this Tour de France has, has been set up to be close. The race route has been designed by Thierry Gouvenou and, and his team to be close. They've thought really carefully about how to make sure that it wasn't all done and dusted through the Pyrenees and that Le Puy de Dom wouldn't be the final kind of decisive moment after uh, the end of week one. They have the time bonuses on these climbs to encourage racing and to make these moments and then we get exactly what everybody's hoping for. The best two riders in the race, one and two on GC, split by nine seconds this morning. They're coming up the climb together. I mean, when Pogacar made that move and then Vingegaard uh, closed up, I mean, next season's Netflix series was being made in front of our eyes, wasn't it? And then when Pogacar launched from a long way out, admittedly, the motorbikes just weren't ready. It was difficult to see what was ahead of that and whether they couldn't move, but they certainly didn't move quick enough and they really affected the race. That is a common problem though. I mean, Ian, you will know, of course, from being in the peloton, often and we we saw it a couple of days ago Wout van Aert telling the motorbike to just get out of the way you know often there is a race incident happening now and they just don't react and it definitely needs to be something that has to be looked into and has to be changed because we can't have it affecting the outcome especially in a race like the Tour de France when it's so close yeah I mean and this was as you said Lionel this race was designed and these bonuses have been added because it adds an element of excitement to the race and the fact that they know that there's a sprint at the top of this climb and they didn't put barriers there you know once once the incident happened i was looking closely to see what was there anything there and all we saw was a rope which everyone knows a rope is very flexible and the fans can you know push that rope in and as much as i am disappointed and like it really is in a way disgraceful that that this happened at, at the tour de france the biggest bike race in the world I'm also reminded that this is cycling and this stuff happens all the time and it's just part of it. And, you know, we could get to Paris and this could be the incident that shapes the race or it could be completely irrelevant and everyone forgets. True. I mean, at the moment, it feels really significant because Vingegaard and Pogacar are separated by so few seconds. I mean, my old brain just sinks back to the 1988 Tour de France on Alpe d'Huez where the crowds were huge and there was a group of four of the leading riders on GC and they wanted to make attacks and the motorbikes were just blocking the way completely. And I think, well, I've spoken to Graham Watson, the photographer who was on the climb that day, and he said that they changed the rules about how many bikes could be in front of the, the, the lead group. Um, but here we are, what, uh, 35 years later, and we're still having motorbikes influencing the race and preventing one of the best riders in the world from executing the tactic that he wanted to execute when he wanted to execute it. Yes, I know the crowds are big, but it's a disappointing one because we could have been looking at a different GC tonight. Okay, it might only have been seconds, but 
it changed everything for Pogacar that. As we saw, when Vingegaard then went, took the seconds at the top, Pogacar tried to then attack on as they went just over the false flat and then onto the descent. It clearly unsettled him and, and changed what he was doing. I mean, and this race hasn't been a uh, hasn't been a tour of changing hands of the yellow jersey, but it has been a change of momentum. And you know, as far as I can recall, this is the first time that Jonas has beat Pogachar in a time bonus, or, you know, a sprint finish. Um, and so, does this, in a way, change the tides, change the momentum in in Vingegaard's hand? Where hey, you know, I mean, you know, Pogachar did not have a clean run at it, but does it give Vingegaard a little bit of you know? thought that, hey, you know what, I can actually go mano a mano and match him in a sprint. Yeah, I don't think it will affect Pogacar's sort of mental outlook towards it. But what I do think is that in that initial moment, straight after the incident, he sort of seemed to be quite shaken. He he almost didn't really seem to be thinking straight from from a viewing perspective he was riding on the front he was he'd slowed down so much he'd almost lost the focus that the fact that what he was aiming for just 10 seconds ago was this bonus sprint because all he could think about was that everything had everything that had just happened but you said to me earlier Ian that you think that actually it may have been an issue with just the lactate in his legs as well yeah and I'd heard at the finish line from some from some Slovenians that he didn't sprint at the finish. I mean, part of it was probably psychological that he was a bit mentally taken out of it, but that he had made this effort and he'd kind of almost come to an abrupt stop and, you know, kind of just, you know, you know, was overcome with lactic acid and, and wasn't prepared to then make another sprint. Or couldn't when, go or again. Or couldn't do it again, mm-hmm. yes. When, although, that being said, he did attack yeah. know, just, yeah. after, just after <laughs> well, the summit of the climb. But you, I know, mean, you never know how yeah. riders feel. He's a racer, though. That's the thing. And I suppose that's what's most frustrating. You know, you, it's very rare that we get a rider that is so aggressive and unpredictable. I mean, I wouldn't have said that he would go over 500 metres from the top of the plan to try and get those seconds thought maybe to leave it a bit closer um but we want to see the riders have a, a blank canvas to uh, to create the race um i know he wasn't the only rider impacted by the motorbikes i gather although i didn't see it carlos rodriguez also was blocked by motorbikes and uh well i from going around the team buses i think mick rogers who um is part of the uci and an ex-rider of course but he is uh, likely to get quite a few complaints this evening about the, the conduct of the motorbike drivers. I don't want to point the finger at them and say it's their fault, but clearly they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and uh, they may well pay a price for that. It, at the finish, Pogacar, though, did beat Vingegaard and mm-hmm. got those seconds, and so after all of that, the difference was one second. And I mean, that is what we're kind of all craving in the Tour de France, isn't it? It is a race of seconds at the moment and it really sets up for a fantastic day tomorrow. But Ian, last night we were talking about how well UAE Team Emirates were doing. They looked totally like they had the upper hand with five riders to two. Today was a different story, wasn't it? Jumbo Visma really struck back. And I mean, you made a mention of it. Maybe that was the plan. Yesterday, take it easy so that they could hit today a lot harder. And they certainly did. Absolutely. And, and, you know, when you look at today's stage, multiple climbs versus yesterday, which was essentially just a finishing climb, you know, were their teammates more valuable? And, and, And we heard this in the press conference after the race, you know, how can Jumbo isolate Pogachar? And, you know, yesterday with one climb, you know, with the team they have here, they don't really have riders to kind of set the pace for a whole climb, you know, Van Barl's an amazing climber, but he's more versatile over a stage that has multiple climbs. And so today their tactic was 
can we you know just slowly drain Pogachar over the whole stage and then maybe on the final climb he's he's more drained than he was yesterday when it was just one climb up to the finish well you spoke to a few people from Jumbo Visma Ian uh, Sepp Kuss who was well almost man of the match today really wasn't he? he rode so strongly and he's moved up the GC as well but also Franz Masson one of their sports directors who talks about the incident with the motorbikes and also uh, the issue of this race for bonus seconds and uh, the fact that well Pogacar and Vingegaard are going to have to go for them. Sepp after yesterday you guys definitely came into today's stage with a plan did it did it go to plan in the end? Uh, for sure I, I mean uh, we we rode the race like we wanted to, uh, a lot of teams were asking, what, what are you doing? Uh, riding uh, with the breakaway there 20 seconds in front the whole time. But we just, yeah, wanted to ride our our rhythm and make it a, a tough day and, and then try on the last climb. But, uh, yeah, no, no regrets. We gave it everything, and, and Jonas was still really strong. But, uh, yeah, Pogacar is, is right there right there with him, and it's still a, a huge battle. Where you so Jumbo is now right in the front Tell us a little bit more about it and also about Tadej Pogacar. Yeah, I was surprised how, how much the, the, the guys that weigh 20 kilos more than me were making me uh, suffer on the climbs. But, uh, yeah, that's a nice feeling when everybody's motivated uh, for a plan. And uh, Jonas was also motivating us the whole time, saying uh, that he felt really good and... Uh, yeah, that we were riding well, even though it was a, a hard day. And, um, yeah, we, the team, and, and Jonas especially, gave, gave it everything. What was the ideal plan before the last descent? It was ideal to have Solo being a car already there. Yeah, ideally. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's good that he came back to Pogacar and, and could get the, the bonus seconds on the top. Um, and then, yeah, in the, in the finish, uh, you, you never know who, who goes ahead. And... Uh, can take the the stage win so that also takes some of the bonus seconds but yeah I, ideally you want a beautiful solo victory <laughs> yeah the motorbikes uh, was was uh, of course some uh, pity because uh, they couldn't attack then anymore and um, yeah there was such a huge squad you couldn't uh, yeah it's a, it's a battle between uh, safety and uh, yeah all the people who want to cheer and uh, was quite dangerous, yes. Yeah, of course, you keep it in mind, but it's not the most important thing. Uh, we wanted to try to uh, to uh, hit uh, Pogacar, uh, but uh, yeah, he did uh, also uh, hit us, and uh, yeah, I think at the end it was a one-one. Are you thinking more in minutes than seconds then? Yeah, uh, now it is about seconds, but uh, also possible one day it can go uh, with minutes. Eh? You saw uh, today some really great riders uh, like Pit Gogg or uh, Bilbao or Yates, uh, they lost minutes. Eh? So yeah, this can happen also to one of those two. Eh? There was a curious moment with Jumbo Visma though, wasn't there? Because Wout van Aert was riding very strongly, but then uh, Micah came to the front to make sure he would get dropped. But then Wout van Aert fought his way back up, went back up to the front, forcing Micah to come back up to the front to drop him again. And it looked a little bit like maybe Wout van Aert overplayed his hand there when he got back on and perhaps might have been a little a bit better advised to just sit tight for a little bit, hang in and be a bit more used further up the climb easy for me to say from the comfort of the press room I don't know what you thought 
Oh, I was going to say I was pretty impressed with Bart Van Aert's ride throughout the day because Col de la Rama is very hard. You rode it at the weekend, Ian. I rode it a few weeks ago. Um, and, you know, he was right at the front when Pidcock was getting dropped on that climb. And I wondered if that was a direct response to, to your insinuation that he was planning to have his baby at the wrong time of the year, Lionel. <laughs> <laughs> Retracted. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was, I think there's been a lot of discussion around, you know, the Netflix series and kind of this narrative that they built that, you know, maybe Wout is not a, not the best teammate or maybe he has some of his own, you know, mm. kind of motives hidden behind, you know, his team role that he's playing here. Because as you know well, Lizzie, he had ridden a hard effort, you know, he was pop not always, but you sometimes have a little bit more to give. And to come back up to the front and make that effort was really pointless, in my opinion, that he came up, he upped the pace. You know, he, he you know, Rafa, and, you know, the climbers were all setting this very yeah, sustained like, what pace. Was he gonna do? They, know, they know the climb. And so what he did was he, you know, popped Micah, and then, then it was Sepp left to ride. And we don't know how far Rafael Micah would have taken, you know, that group of climbers up the climb. And the effort that he made to go from off the back all the way to the front and then up the pace. You know, he didn't sit on for a bit. Okay, how's the pace? Can I move up? Can I be assistance? Mm. In my opinion, it reminded me very much of a, of a TV attack. And, and, you know, I was watching on, on the screen, you know, there's exclamation points, you know, Bernard has rejoined the group. And, he, so, and it just, so it you didn't think he's got a direct earpiece to the Netflix producers? <laughs> is, that what you're, is that what you're telling us? No, but I just, I just, <laughs> I really didn't, if he, and if he had that level of, you know, freshness still left mm. that could have been used to pull longer at the bottom of the climb mm. and, and mm. so you know clearly when he pulled off you know i mean uh, micah took took over the climb when they got to the bottom but it was a big effort that he made and it didn't really benefit Vinga goal at all no i would agree so i mean what have we learned today i mean one second was the difference we still have a race of only 10 seconds it strikes me that uae team emirates and yumba visma are actually very evenly matched they're just even not evenly matched at the same time they're choosing different times to put their sort of footprint on the race it's starting to look like tuesday's time trial is going to be really important because that's the only opportunity where vingegaard and pagachar will just race the road and, and it will just be down to whoever stops the clock first. Because in the actual racing, they're just watching each other. They're not really able to crack one another. And they're, they're just going to tease out seconds here and there. Yeah, I mean, this, I mean, it's been an awesome week to be on the tour because this is so exciting. Every day, you know, they're, they're going blow for blow. And, you know, I saw Pogacar at the base of the Jou plan, you know, take his gloves and throw them off. And I was like, this, it's just, everything is just, the suspense is building. And, you yeah. know, the fact that we had such a hard stage and one second changed, you know, th there's been no different, you know, they've been so, you know, mano a mano every single day. And then you know, Pogacar slowly called him, you know, crawled himself back. And yet Vingegaard today, in fairness, did kind of was the first time that he matched Pogacar's acceleration. You know, Pogacar made this attack pretty far out from the top of the Jou plan but he was able to claw himself back before the summit. And, you know, if anything, maybe, in my opinion, kind of proved today that, you know, maybe he can actually win this tour. It's interesting looking ahead to the time trial because it is a tricky time trial and they are quite different riders. So, you know, I think it will be close because they're both very, very good riders and they clearly have similar watts per kilo. But I think they will ride it in very different ways. And that might mean that we see quite different time splits. Um, mm. So... I I think we will I don't think we'll see a big difference there but maybe 10 or 20 seconds maybe 10 seconds I don't know 
I mean, one of the things that, that Jonas said in, in the press conference, again, was that he doesn't think this race will be won on seconds and time bonuses. This race will be won by minutes, which means, at, you know, there's kind of four stages left where something will happen. So he's expecting to absolutely blow up one day. Is <laughs> yeah, that right? Maybe, yeah. uh, the thing is, we've, we've seen tours before where the GC riders all kind of finished together. You know, the pace has been hard, but there's not been any real racing. This tour is totally different. There is racing between those two and the others are kind of trying to keep on the coattails and well Carlos Rodriguez did more than that today we'll talk about Ineos Grenadiers in the next part but I just want to reference again that moment of the day for me was the, the little nod from Pogacar to Adam Yates I just it was almost a goosebump moment because their teammates Adam Yates is a great rider in his own right he's had the yellow jersey and won a stage of course right back in Bilbao feels like a lifetime ago now but it was just a moment that just indicated that they're on the same wavelength they're totally committed to a plan I mean you wouldn't expect them not to be but to see it actually in 3D I thought was a was a great moment yeah I mean it was it was old school cycling you know and and the race was being decided on the road you know there wasn't something coming across the radio okay now's the time to attack you know Pogacar felt the moment he knew you know based off what was happening with you know the speed that Sepp was riding and looked over to to Adam and said all right, this is our plan. Now's the moment. And, and clearly something they had, dis- had discussed before the race that, hey, if we feel good, we're going to hit it on this climb. Shoot, uh, shoot at l'arrière du plateau. Cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack, please. We are very proud to be supported by MAP, who have also created our fantastic cycling podcast jersey and lots of other fantastic jerseys. They've really pushed the envelope when it comes to cycling jersey design. And one of the key aspects of their product development is testing products as they create them and this is Harry Osborne the head of design on how they identify the right types of riders to test map clothing. Product testing is clearly um, you know an essential part of the design and development process. As we're going through that process we're constantly looking to build concepts, test them and then resolve them. Essentially it starts with people within the business. You know, we're all riders. We have a level of experience that will allow us to to test. If we're liking it and we're thinking it's got a great feeling on the bike, it's then a good opportunity to look within our community and see who we can bring in that's going to provide, you know, some wider feedback, a different opinion or some more detailed insights into, you know, a particular problem we might want to be solving for. We have a great roster of, um, you know, amateur cyclists and people within our community who are, you know, really engaged in in helping us test product. But then on the flip side, you know, we have a, an ever-growing professional sort of athlete roster, people like Freddie Ovette, who can provide a level of detail that is unique to the amount of riding and the amount of experience they have. A good example is Chris Burkhard, who um, is currently doing the uh, tour divide in in the US and you know we've been working closely with him on analyzing and getting feedback on our alt road bib shorts um, which he um, is wearing and you know he had some feedback on bits he thinks he we can improve and we've you know built a prototype for him that he's currently wearing um, on that huge epic adventure um, so you know that feedback cycle um, is ever evolving and we're constantly trying to look where we can get um, that feedback from and how we can incorporate into the design process. Go to map.cc to check out the entire range of Maps clothing for on and off the bike.
Well, we've not yet been trapped inside the Tour de France village. We're still, we're still free as a bird, but the tour is being set up around us outside. We should talk about the stage winner, Carlos Rodriguez, young man still. He's only 22 and clearly a huge talent. And uh, today he gave Ineos two stage wins in two days. And I wonder how much credit Dave Brailsford would be taking because apparently he arrived on the race yesterday. He was certainly there mm, this I saw afternoon. Him today. He was looking pretty happy. He was looking pretty happy there in his kind of Tom Cruise from Top Gun sunglasses and his white shirt and trousers, uh, looking very dapper. Uh, ducked out of the way before I could have a quick chat with him. But uh, Ineos Grenadiers, you know, we were talking at the start of the tour about what are they doing? What are they here for? What are they looking for in this transitional phase? And all of a sudden, they've got a rider on the podium and two stage wins in the same number of days. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, it really has been kind of a turn of events for that team. You know, we spoke to, to Rod yesterday at the finish line, and he, he, and he mentioned that as well, that it is a transitional moment for the team. But, you know, within the blink of an eye, a rider on the podium, two stage wins in two days. And I heard yesterday at, at the bus of Ineos, you know, Rod was saying that their goal was two stage wins. And of course they just won with Kwiatkowski and I was thinking, okay, well, when are they going to get their second stage win? That didn't take long. Because we thought that Rodriguez and Pidcock would be too close to the GC, too much in the GC battle to be given any leeway. I mean, we should just say, caveat this with the fact that had Pogacar and Vingegaard not slowed down and done their kind of track sprint tactics at the top of the Plan, Rodriguez might not have got back. I think it was like 51 seconds or something behind at that point. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, it's an absolute, um, you know, uh, seal of approval for the statement that you just keep riding in, in a stage race. You just keep going and you never know where it might take you. And that funny business between Pogacar and Vingegaard didn't have any effect on the gap between Rodriguez and Jai Hindley behind because now Rodriguez is only one second ahead of Jai Hindley and when Jai Hindley crossed the finish line in front of me after the race he was really I mean I don't know how he was physically but his clothes were torn to pieces arms back and his side and that's going to start to affect him in the next one or two days if that starts to affect him on the rest day then how's he going to feel going into the time trial and that's a massive massive factor and now Ineos obviously have the psychological boost of having two stage wins of course they've had a little bit of trouble with Pidcock today but um, I heard him after the stage and you know he was actually relatively chipper considering what happened well let's hear from Tom Pidcock after the stage the first of the GC riders to be dropped really or certainly the first of the top 10 to be dropped he really battled very hard to stay on but just couldn't do it we thought he might make up time on the descent but he couldn't do that either and then well it was going to be hard with that bit of valley road before the start of the Juplan um Steve Cummings and Rod Ellingworth have both been talking about the importance for Pidcock of kind of hitting his head on the ceiling and finding out where his limits lie. Uh, I'm not saying that today he found out where his limits lie, but he certainly found out where they lie for the moment. Well, Tom, we know about the crash early in the day and we know we've seen the results, but tell us the story of your day in your own words. Um, it was a very hard day. Um, yeah, it's a shame really. I was full of confidence this morning. You know, imagine doing this epic attack off the top of the Zouplan. Obviously, I wasn't really making a big deal out of it. But, um, yeah, then just we started full gas and I just didn't really have it in me. And, um, yeah, I thought maybe I could save a little bit over the uh, over Ramaz, but yeah, I didn't come back under the centre. And yeah, then I was, I was just cooked. Um, and then I took my radio out and then I come down the, the 
went back to the bus, everyone's saying congratulations. And then, uh, yeah, Carlos won, so it makes it a bit better. Tom, that moment on the top of the Ramaz, you were about, only about 30 seconds off the lead group, and we thought that you might well get back. I think Van Aert was pulling at the front. Just from your point of view, um, talk to us about that descent and the valley as well. Well, I didn't have any motorbikes in front of me, did I? So yeah, it's not really a very technical descent to be honest, so um, yeah, it's hard to make up time And it was a slightly different race today with your Mervisma sort of pulling all day and it was it was more of an old school kind of Tour de France stage. Um, any questions that that not suiting you as much as uh, the, the, the stages as they've been ridden until now? Yeah, I mean, it's just, I think, need to evaluate it a little bit, but I just didn't have enough energy, basically, I think. You know, yesterday, late stage, late dinner. Not really enough us. Not really. We've talked a bit in the past few days, Ian, about Carlos Rodriguez and this rumour that he's on his way to probably Movistar. Well, this evening, Steve Cummings certainly said that he hopes he doesn't leave. He didn't, you know, give the impression that the deal was done. Um, I mean, he would be a big asset to Ineos Grenadiers, somebody that they could build a Grand Tour team around. Well, we've been speaking about this. You know, who are the riders that can win a Grand Tour? And in the last number of years, it's, it's really been three riders. You know, you've had, well, I guess four if you had, you know, Roglic in there as well and uh, Remco. But he is young enough that he could develop into a rider. And uh, in my opinion, Ineos does need to do everything they can to try to keep him around because he's shown in this tour, you know, we're nearly two weeks in, that he is a rider who's capable of, you know, riding with the best, best GC riders in the world. Ian, this morning you spoke to yesterday's man of the day, Michał Kwiatkowski, about his stage win. So let's hear from uh, the Polish former world champion and twice Tour de France stage winner. Big win yesterday. How are you feeling today? Uh, so far, so good, but uh, I slept four hours. So uh, there was a lot of emotions. I woke up like 4 a.m., kind of fresh, but on the same time, if you sleep only four hours at the Tour de France, it means uh, you need to catch up. I mean... And what does that victory mean to you? You've been world champ, you've won a stage here at the Tour before, but still, I mean, clearly it was an emotional victory. Why is that? I'm the guy who always looking ahead, so, you know, uh, you know, even having a Palmar, good Palmares, it doesn't mean, uh, you know, that I'm not motivated for the future, you know. They were telling me that I'm over 30 now and stuff like this, but, you know, uh, I, I like to work hard. Uh, you know, victories obviously helps with that, but uh, on the end of the day, I just want to perform well in the future races that's that's my goal and uh, hopefully I can take some more wins yeah has it become challenging to balance working for the team and trying to seek personal results yeah obviously it is but uh, you know it's it's always nice to open a bottle of champagne after your win but on the same time it's great to celebrate with uh, victory of your teammates so uh, yeah, this is professional cycling. It's not Formula One that you have big ego and you always kind of drive for your own result. Uh, here, you have to really collaborate and uh, think about you know the the team effort. And because sooner or late, later, you will need your boys, uh, you know, up there in the road. And uh, that's why I'm you know happy to help whenever I can. 
Congratulations, man. Thank you. It was interesting to see Dave Brailsford here because he has really stepped away from the cycling team. He's been working with Jim Ratcliffe on this bid to buy Manchester United Football Club. He's been working with Nice, the football club in the French Ligue 1. And, well, he was there today, you know, high-fiving Rod Ellingworth, no doubt taking all the credit for the (laughs) two-stage wins. But I think there was a bit of intel from this morning, Ian, uh, that Brailsford said, well, you won yesterday, we're going to win again today. Yeah, I was speaking to one of the Swanyers actually at the finish, um, and he had mentioned that Dave was on the race and, you know, maybe implying that I should go say hi, but I'm a busy man today. Um, But, yeah, he had mentioned that on the bus this morning that Dave said, hey, we're going to win again today, which... I assume at the start, the team maybe wouldn't have thought, but sure enough, yeah, they won once again. And just a note about Ben Turner, who didn't uh, finish yesterday. He has had some kind of sickness bug and, uh, well, yeah, obviously not going to carry on in a tour with sickness. Let's hope that hasn't sort of spread its way around the team. I mean, it can do, can't it, living in close quarters with one another. But uh, quite a couple of days for Ineos. We'll wrap up all the other things that happened today in the next part. Well, now we have a race of seconds for first and second and a race of seconds or one second for third and fourth and another big stage in the mountains tomorrow. L'étape de demain, le dîner d'hier. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's dinner. First of all, though, Ian, last night's dinner, we thought we'd won the Tour de France by staying just a few kilometres away, and our hotel in Anglefort was absolutely rammed when we got there. We started to worry about whether the kitchen would be able to cope with dinner, but they coped admirably. It was a really nice dinner, actually, wasn't it? They did, once things calmed down. At first, we tried to get a, a big beer. We got a small beer, and then the second time we went for beers, our pints came in plastic cups. Uh, so a little bit disappointed. But Not, from not there, just plastic cups, but sort of those squashy plastic cups like you'd have on a picnic. Or in the U.S., we'd say like a red solo cup for beer pong. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but, but things did turn around from there. Once the table was set and the Tour de France had moved out of town, um, we had a lovely meal. I had, a, I had some steak. I think I've eaten more steak in the last seven days than I've eaten in the last year of my life. And you had some, some alpine salmon. Yeah, well, we were, <laughs> we were miles and miles from the sea, so I thought I'd have some salmon. Very well, nice it was, though. you're in cheese country tonight, so you can have uh, cheese on a bed of cheese with cheese on top. Brilliant, brilliant. I like to eat as, the, so much cheese that I start to see sort of stars in front of my eyes. That's what I like I to did do in the Alps. You, I did offer to bring you a kilo of cheese from the cheese vending machine on my ride today, but you said that it would get a little too sweaty in the van. Well, the thing is, we've rented the van from our good friend Simon the photographer, and I don't want to take it back smelling of cheese. That's, that's <laughs> the only reason. Uh, what's on the menu for the riders tomorrow, Lizzie? It's another really tough Tough day in the mountains again tomorrow, um, over 4,000 metres of climbing from Léger to Saint-Gervais via the very scenic route. Three category one climbs, uh, a third category climb and a second category climb. And the second category climb is what I think may be the key climb of the day. It's sort of the, the, I described it in the kilometre zero as the amuse-bouche to the Saint-Gervais climb. It's a couple of kilometres at 10%. It's very hot, right in the, you know, (laughs) right in the face of the sun. Um, so steep, so hard, and straight afterwards you have this nine-kilometer climb up to San Gervais. So I think sparks could fly there, uh, and if somebody wants to go early, that would be the place to do it. Well, we will be back tomorrow night to discuss stage 15, or as Seb PK will call it, stage 14, and then it's the rest day. And, well, it's the weekend now and the rest day on Monday, so probably a good time to catch up on all of our Kilometre Zero episodes, which have been going out over the course of the week. Hopefully everyone's enjoying Francois Tomazo's tour tales. Uh, Lizzie's road trip 
was fantastic as well. And if you want to know about the coming stages, that's as good a place as any to start. And, well, Francois and I took a deep dive into the history and influence of L'Equipe. And coming early next week is my chat with their number one cycling writer, Alex Ruth. Uh, I spoke to him this morning at the Start Village. What a fantastic... Uh, guy and a great writer and we'll hear little clips of some of his poetic prose from L'Equipe from this Tour de France and also on the rest day the 1101 Cappuccino will be going out so sign up for that at thecyclingpodcast.com sign up as a friend of the podcast also at thecyclingpodcast.com and for the first time you can sign up on a monthly basis so if you just want to have a listen to all the tour episodes you can do so and it will cost you about the cost of a couple of cappuccinos not the 1101 cappuccino that's free but actual real cappuccinos anyway tomorrow we will be in where will we be we'll We'll be be in in saint chevet that's right so until then thank you very much lizzie welcome to the tour thank you and thank you lionel and thank you ian thank you lionel let's go and have some cheese the cycling podcast was created in 2013 by richard moore daniel freeb and lionel burney